The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. Here's what we're doing tonight. We're jumping back into a series that we started a couple years ago. It's called The Miracles of Jesus. And so the major premise here, what we're working off of, is that looking to the life and words and actions of Jesus is the best way uh, to know who God is and what he is like. Uh, Why would we say that? What are we building that case off of? Well, I'll give you a few things. First is Hebrews 1. The major premise, looking to Jesus is the best way to know and understand who God is. Here's what Hebrews 1 says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. In addition to that, in John chapter 14, Jesus himself says this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue studying these interactions that Jesus had with people. And we're going to ask God as we do this to help us grow in faith and love for him as we see more and more his goodness and his power as we study these scriptures. We're also going to hope that in the, as another kind of auxiliary benefit, we're going to be able to better understand ourselves as we see all the different folks that Jesus touched and loved and helped throughout his earthly ministry. So I asked you to turn to Matthew 8. I hope you're there. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read to verse 13, okay? And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay, so these verses, I promise, are a treasure trove. And we're in even more trouble because I'm seeing something in this that I've never seen before. So I'm so excited to get to that. So I have to be forcibly selective in how we're going to go at this, because if I'm not, we're going to be here so long, you're going to have friends and family putting out missing persons reports, okay? So I can't hit everything, uh, but we're going to try to hit the highlights, all right? So what I want to do first is give you some minor themes that are in this. I I can't go too deep into them, but 
I, I think they should at least be mentioned. Okay, so the first thing is, is just to call attention to the character of this centurion, okay? This guy was obviously a true life homie, all right? Uh, if you don't know what a true life homie is, that is like a, a good guy, okay, basically, all right? So that's what that means. Um, he was a high-ranking officer in the Roman army. Uh, he also ranked pretty high because of that on the social totem pole. So important guy, got resources, okay? And yet, in this centurion, we see an element of godliness in his leadership that, quite frankly, is often missing in many so-called godly leaders. Um, he clearly did not treat those under his authority as throwaway pawns, only worth something if they're accomplishing his goals. Uh, this sick servant that he comes to Jesus about, he, he wasn't just a gear in the machine for this guy. He was someone that, that this Roman soldier really cared about. And that says a lot. And I think just, again, it's a minor theme, but just quick application of that is these are the kind of leaders that we should seek to be when we are allowed to lead others. This is a good example. But also, it's the kind of leaders that we should look to serve under. Because uh, there's a lot of people with charisma, there's a lot of people that can talk, uh, but when you peel just past that, there's not a whole lot of care for the people that they're trying to lead. Um, you know, God calls us to love people and use things, not use people and love things, but sometimes people get that switched around, okay? Yeah. Uh, th so the second kind of minor theme that I want to point out to you is that uh, God does not give two rips about our little foolish false divisions that we set up between ourselves and others, okay? How do I see that here? Well, Jesus here was ready to go to a pagan military officer's house, okay? Now, not only a pagan military officer, a military officer of the Roman army who had conquered and subjugated the people of Israel, mind you, okay? Jesus was going to go into his house and heal his servant, okay? Now, you may not be familiar with the tradition of the time, but I'm going to tell you this would have been a major no-no, Okay, uh, according to the man-made rules of the time, they would have dictated that Jesus doing this, going into this pagan's home, would have made him unclean, Okay, which is a big deal. So uh, what we see, though, is not just um, the, the calling out of this problem, right? but we also see the, the solution. The best cure for these false and sinful divisions uh, is for us to view all of our self-righteous prejudice through the lens of eternity. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, I'll show you exactly what I mean. Jesus did that. That's how he addressed it. Let me read you verses 11 and 12, uh, right here where we were in Matthew 8. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what's happening here is Jesus is tilting his hand. Jesus is opening uh, the veil a little bit, letting us see behind the curtain. Uh, you know, there's been clues all along, all through the Old Testament. I mean, we were in Haggai the last four weeks, and it was already, you know, we're seeing it show up, this idea that God's plan was never just to take Israel and make that his only people, and they're the only ones that are going to spend eternity with him. He took Israel, set them apart, and used them as a part of an overall greater, larger plan of redemption that was going to include all who would come to Christ by faith, and that's what he's saying right here, right? Everybody there, the, the, all, all of the Jews that were around would have been totally freaked out by the idea of Jesus messing with this pagan at all. Uh, he was dancing around the, being unclean, just even talking to him, but much less that he would go to his house. And Jesus is like, hold on a second, man. 
God has granted faith to this guy, first of all, and you're going to be real surprised from the east and the west, from places you would not even have been able to imagine people are going to come and sit at that table one day, that great eternal feast in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus is just, he's, he's wrecking stuff, uh, which I am so appreciative of. I'm so glad he does that. What we need to know, friends, we need to know this about ourselves. We need to be humble and self-aware about this. We are prone to sinful tribalism because we are sinful humans, period. You have a tendency towards sinful tribalism, and so do I. We are amazingly adept at separating ourselves by race and age, income, political persuasion, relational status, and whatever other eternally non-consequential and ignorant goofiness we can come up with. But here's the thing. If you pay any attention to the way Jesus rolled, Jesus was constantly taking a wrecking ball to all the sinful walls that we build to separate ourselves from people. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to do that. We, we build walls to, to keep ourselves away from people ultimately that we feel superior to. And, and that, you know, that, superior, that superior feeling may even come out of jealousy because some of you might, you know, let's just say, for example, somebody, somebody of a lower income just really doesn't like people that have a higher income because they're all corrupt. And the only way you could ever get that way is if you stepped on the, the foot, the head of someone else. And that's just always the way it is. So you're feeling real superior. You're feeling moral, morally superior on absolutely no grounds whatsoever. And, and you'll build walls and you'll, you'll feel better about yourself than that person. We are all prone to that kind of foolish sin. We are all prone to not being able to rest in the affirmation and the beautiful testimony of our great worth because of Christ dying in our place for our sins, of shedding his blood to purchase us. And so we end up in, in, in a scramble to try to feel better uh, about ourselves. We, we look around and try to put others down somehow. And then we separate away from them. It's a sinful tendency. It's a prideful tendency that all of us struggle with. Um, and maybe, maybe you're somebody that's less prone than others to struggle that way you'll sinfully feel prideful about the fact that you're less prone than others to do that. <laughs> Amen. So what we need to do is we need to, we need to ask God to help us by his Holy Spirit to put down all of our wall-building tools to grab ourselves a sledgehammer so that we can join Jesus on his demolition team because Jesus is about wrecking this stuff. Amen? You guys willing to join Jesus' demo team and tear stuff up? In your own heart, in your own life and mind, and yeah, amen. Good. Break stuff for the Lord. So, all right, those are the minor themes, all right? But the big theme here in all of this is faith, okay? Verses, uh, verse 10 says that, that the faith of this centurion made Jesus marvel, okay? That should catch our attention, for sure. Uh, and, I, and I'm hoping, just the fact that we've read this, and now I've mentioned that again, that the practical application for you is already apparent. But, but just in case, I want to I spell it out. I, I sincerely hope that all of us, as we read this account, that our hearts were moved with passion and a desire to please God and to make him marvel like this centurion did. The contrast to this account is found in Mark 6, and it's the only other time we see recorded in the scriptures that Jesus marveled at anything or he was amazed by something. And what happened in Mark 6 was that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of those in his hometown of Nazareth where he was not able to do many miracles, it says. And so 
Here we see Jesus marveling at the faith of the centurion. He marveled uh, at the unbelief of others. I, I don't know about you. I, it's just pretty simple to me which side of that I want to be standing on. <laughs> and I just, I, I, when I read this and I hear that my master stopped and his attention was grabbed by the faith of this centurion, it, make, it makes something in me want to stand up and, and rise to that. I want to please Jesus. I want to please God the Father. And apparently there's something about the way this guy's faith was operating that did that. And so that makes me want to rub my sleepy eyes and pay attention to what's going on here and do some digging and figure out what is it. It's not just that he liked his armor. It's not just that Jesus likes centurions. What is it? What caught his attention? My hope is that we want to understand what it is that made Jesus amazed by this guy's faith and why Jesus was so encouraged by it. And that we would desire to walk in that same type of faith, but not so that we can get God to do stuff for us, but, but simply because we love him and we want to please him. So let me, let me read you this as we begin to unpack it. We know that it, without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six says that. It says, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so what I want to ask you right now to seriously consider, friends, think about this. Do you desire to please God? Do you? And my question to you then is, if not, if you're being honest with yourself and you're sitting here and the answer is no or I'm not sure, then what I'm asking you to do is for you to ask him to help you right now to see why this should be the highest goal of every human, to please him. Because the whole rest of this sermon is not going to make much sense to you, and the application will be very murky if you don't have a deep-seated passion and desire in you to please God. But for those of you that do, for those of you who maybe, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know what, uh, maybe my desire to please God is, is not as, as much as it once was, but I'm reading about the centurion and I'm, I'm getting stoked about it. Well, hallelujah, then the word of God is doing its great work in your heart. But may all of us right now challenge ourselves. May all of us really think about what, what, how do I know <laughs> if I desire to please God? Do I? How high is that for me on the list of priorities? And if you answered, yes, I do desire to please God, is it, let's be honest, is, is, it, is it about getting on his good side to, to get something from him or to avoid his wrath? Is that part of why, yeah, I want to please him because I read in the Bible that he, he does things for people. And I know I need things sometimes. Or, or, or have you read or, or been told that, yeah, the, the wrath of God is real and, and he's going to deal with sin. And so, yeah, I want to please him so that I can avoid that wrath. Or, or is it because you know he has already given us freely the greatest gift that could ever be given in Christ? Do you want to please him to try to get him to do something or not do something? Or do you want to please him because of what he's already done in Christ? The greatest gift that could ever be given to anybody has been given to us. And he's already made a way for us to be saved from his just and holy wrath. Are we, are we desirous to please him? Because 
we think that's somehow going to get him to love us, or do, are we thoroughly convinced of his great love for us? And that pushes us, that causes us to have this passionate desire to please him. The latter is what we're hoping for. And, and friends, we are constantly pulled, we are constantly tempted to slip back into those other ways of looking at it. Either just an absolute apathy altogether, not thinking about whether or not I'm pleasing God in a given day, not running my thoughts through the grid of whether or not this is pleasing to God, not running the things coming out my mouth through the grid of whether this is pleasing to God, not running my actions through that grid of whether or not this is pleasing to God. We, all the time we get sucked into just straight absolute abdication of this responsibility to think about the glory of God, the pleasure of God, and, and that we were made for his pleasure. So it can be that all the way over there, or it, there's increments in between. There's places where we, we, we get pulled back into, yeah, I know, yeah, I do, I do want to please God, but, but there's this tug of war between that and I want to please myself, or I want to please somebody else. But God, by his Holy Spirit and through the power of his word, he wants to help us with that today. He wants to free us to pursue that great and glorious goal that we were created for. That being his pleasure, fellowship with him. Hallelujah. It's a lot more fun to do what you were made to do than try to do something else. That gets old real fast. So, let's explore together what faith is and why God is pleased by it. Okay? Uh, the word faith is often used interchangeably with trust, okay? And maybe you've thought that before. Like, what is the difference between trust and faith? Well, they, they are different. Uh, and, and faith, really, the word faith, it stands alone in its own category. But a better synonym for faith than trust would be belief, okay? Why am I saying that? I'll tell you why. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so as the Bible is explaining to us what faith is, well, we know without it, we can't please God, okay? And we also know that tied into that is this idea that if you're, if you're going to come to God, you have to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So faith is a noun. It's something you possess, whereas trust is is a verb. It's something you do, okay? Uh, continuing along this line of thought as we're just giving shape to understanding what faith is, it can be kind of a hard concept to grab. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so faith has a substance to it. Faith is a thing that we have, all right? Um, in Seeking to figure out a way to illustrate the difference because, you know, a lot of times I think we just assume like faith, faith trust, belief, that, that we just kind of, you know, depending on what seems to fit nice in the sentence, we just interchange them out. But it is important to know that, that there's a difference. So in, in trying to illustrate the difference, um, there was a guy, his name was Charles Blondin. And uh, in, in 1859, uh, he was basically the premier ballerist uh, tightrope walker around. Okay, so uh, his, his grand stunt that really put him on the, on the map is uh, a 1,300-foot span from the American side of the Niagara Falls to the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls. Okay, so a roughly two-inch rope made of hemp uh, stretches all the way across. And um, so, you know, he starts out by just walking across it, and, and, but then, like, he gets to the other side, and he's going to walk back. He brings a camera with him, sets it up in the middle, 
of the tightrope, takes a picture of the crowd, and then comes back. Subsequent runs, he like cooked an omelet out on the tightrope. So he's pushing, pushing the envelope here. Uh, and eventually it works, you know, everyone's eating it up. You know, more and more crowds are coming. They're getting excited. And so eventually uh, he ends up, uh, he's got a manager, right? That's kind of, it's kind of his hype guy, right? His promo guy. His name's Harry Colcord, okay? And so the, the last and kind of biggest deal is that um, Charles shows up on the, on the one side ready to go across with his manager, Harry, on his back. And he's about to go across this thing. And uh, they make it. It's, you know, I'm sure terrifying, but they made it. So in, in, in that situation, okay, so you've, you've got the crowd watching. You've got Harry on the back of the tightrope guy. The crowd had faith. They'd seen him do all this kind of stuff, whatever. The crowd had faith that he could get over there and back. Harry had to trust <laughs> that he could get over there and back, okay? It's interesting if you, if you read the account um, of what, what Charles was saying to Harry, he said, listen, man, when we get out on this rope, you're, you're no longer Harry Colcord. You are now Charles Blondin. Look up. Don't try to do nothing. Don't try to balance yourself. If I sway, you sway with me. You just do what I do. I think there's something to that when it comes to having faith in God as well, but you didn't seem to like that very much, so I'll keep going. So the question is, all right, we're trying to just define faith a little bit, get an idea of what, what that is before we go into trying to understand specifically the centurion's faith. What was it about that that got the attention of our master to the point that the scriptures describe him as marveling at the centurion's faith? The most obvious answer, and, and it's the one that most people point to, is, is his faith in the authority of Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 again, just to highlight that point. Uh, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my slave, do this, and he does it. And so we see here that somehow the centurion had an understanding of the authority of Christ and a faith in Jesus' authority over whatever this illness was uh, that was causing his, his servant to be sick. Um, and, and the truth is, you know, when we think about the fact that the, this guy understood this, okay, about Jesus, this authority that he had, it's really quite remarkable because, you know, a lot of people at that time, they didn't know what to think of Jesus, right? There was even some people at, at one point that there was religious leaders that accused him of driving out demons by the power of the devil, right? There was, there was a lot of opinions. There was a lot of like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, this Jesus guy, is, he's spitting in clay and people are seeing. He's driving out demons. He's telling some people their sins are forgiven. There was mixed opinions, okay? There was not, um, I would say, a congruent opinion uh, that everybody had and definitely a lot of lack of accuracy. Um, and part of the problem is people had seen before, right? They'd seen false prophets, they had seen fake miracles, trying to lead people astray, but, but somehow this centurion knew that Jesus wasn't just some illusionist that would have to be in the room to pull off his trick, right? He said, don't worry about it. You don't have to come. I know how, I know how this works. I, I trust you. I have faith in you. I know what it's going to take and what you can do. 
And, and what this does, thinking this way, it leads us to another important part of understanding what faith is. I'm talking about how did the centurion get this, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing. How did this centurion have such faith in Jesus? Well, the answer is that God gave it to him because faith is a gift. Let me read you Ephesians 2. This is starting in verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God gave this centurion the faith to trust and believe in the authority of Christ as a gift. This centurion, he, he had faith in the authority of Jesus to not need to come in the room, but to be able to simply speak the word. And that whatever this illness was afflicting his servant would have to obey. Now, what that should lead us to, we're starting to zero in on what caught Jesus' attention. That's, that's pretty marvelous. That's pretty amazing. This guy, this pagan, especially in, in the timeline of all that's going on, having this kind of understanding of, of who Jesus is and the authority that he carried. But the question for us today is, do we have faith in the total and complete authority of Jesus over us and all that concerns us? And here's what we can't do, guys. We can't just say yes because we know that's the right answer. We know the right answer is that we should have faith in the authority of Christ over us and over all that concerns us. Yes, we should. But we can't just nod our heads and do that. So the question is then, how do we know? How do we know if we have faith in the authority of Christ? Well, one way we can know is to take a realistic look and see if we obey the great command that Jesus gave us in light of his authority. Because if you remember the last words that Jesus spoke to his men in Matthew 28, right before he ascended, was, first off, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So in light of that, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. But that great commission, that great call, that mission we've been given, Jesus started that whole thing with all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so that should lead us to ask, are we wholeheartedly, sacrificially, and passionately engaged in the mission Jesus gave us, which was based on his authority? Didn't he start that great commission by saying, I have all authority? And so what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means you, you better listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> I have all authority in heaven and on earth, but also I have the authority to send you, and I'm sending you with my authority. Do we see ourselves as being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, having that vicarious authority and thus the responsibility to bring light and hope to this world that is dark and hopeless apart from Jesus and his gospel? Now, if we judge ourselves and we know that there's room to grow in our faith regarding the authority of Jesus... So just to be clear, I just want to make sure that the connection is made. What I'm saying is we should be full of faith regarding the authority of Christ 
over us and over all that concerns us. And so I'm asking you to actually ask yourself, am I full of faith? Do I really believe in the authority of Jesus? And then I'm telling you that the right way to judge yourself is not just to give yourself a pass, but to run that question up against this judging metric of how much you're willing to obey the Great Commission based on the authority of Christ. Everyone tracking with that? Okay, great. So if we judge ourselves and know that there's room to grow in our faith regarding the authority of Jesus, which I'm assuming all of us could see some room to grow, not only us having faith in the authority of Jesus, but having the trust it takes to obey his authority by engaging in gospel mission, then what do we do? So if we judge ourselves and there's room to grow in that, then what do we do? Do we just faith harder? Well, just... No. (laughs) It's not how we do it, man. No, friends, we pray. We pray. We cry out to God, declaring our desire to please him in faith. And not only our desire to please him in faith, but also our need for his help to do so. We can join the man who said to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a good prayer. It's a good prayer. I hope you'll pray like that today and tomorrow and the next day after that. See, a big part of what made this centurion's faith stand out It was his understanding of and faith in the authority of Jesus. It was one of of the reasons this, of all the things, you know, John said Jesus did so many other things. If we tried to write it down, all the books in all the world couldn't hold it, okay? So why did this one make it? Well, one of the, the, the distinguishing marks of this interaction between Jesus and the centurion is that this guy said, you know, praise God for the woman that ran up and knew if she could touch the hem of his garment, that she would be healed. But there's something about the fact that this guy said, oh, no, I, I get it. It's fine. You don't even have to come to my house. If you'll just say it, I, I, know, I know how it'll go. That caught the master's attention. Okay? So that is part of this. That's part of why Jesus marveled at this. And so what that should cause us to do is, okay, Lord, then help me to contemplate the beauty of your authority. Help me to contemplate what it means that all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. Help me to have faith in your authority, and to apply that to all the situations that I go through, the the difficulties that I'm facing, the sins that beset me, all of it. Lord, help me to revel in your authority because this centurion's faith in the authority of Christ and his understanding of the implications of that caught Jesus' attention. But, unfortunately, I think... What many see as the extent of what made Jesus marvel is this piece about the authority. When most people read this account, they think the fact that the centurion said, you don't have to come to my house, is, is kind of like, that's it, that's all that's there. And you know, That's rad, that's cool, that's awesome. It says a lot about how this guy, what this guy understood about the authority of Christ. But I'm going to submit to you, I don't even think that's the biggest factor in this interaction that made snap Jesus' neck on this and made him turn around to everybody and say, I haven't found faith like this in Israel anywhere. Do you understand, what, do you understand how big of a deal it is for him to make that statement? And I don't think Jesus is given to hyperbole. Exaggeration. He said, I, this pagan Roman centurion, 
I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Who has all of the Old Testament? Who has the tradition of Moses? So what did Jesus see here? No doubt his understanding of Jesus' authority and how that would apply to this situation is a piece. But I believe in order for us to get the full picture and see the the bigger element here, uh, we're going to need to turn to Luke 7. Okay, So if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. I'm going to read it. Uh, you, you get just a second, though, if you want. So you can flip over to Luke 7 if you want. So Luke recorded this same event, okay? And in order to get the full picture, we need to consult Luke's gospel, and we'll see his accounting of the same event, all right? Because there's some details. Matthew includes, has some details that, that Luke didn't put in, but Luke has some details that Matthew didn't write. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to dive in here and see what is to be found. Okay, so I'm in Luke 7. Uh, And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Okay, 7, 1 through 10. It's the same account. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, just pause. So you, so far, we're understanding the Jewish elders are coming to Jesus. They're saying, hey, this guy's asking for his servant to be healed, and, and he, you, we think you should do that for him. Um, he he's, loves our people. He's built our synagogue. Okay, so I, I started out talking about this minor theme of the, the centurion's character. Some more elements of that come through in Luke's accounting. Okay, so either this guy is a God-fearing pagan, probably not circumcised, but probably does uh, acknowledge that the God of Israel is the one true God. So it's either that, he's either that, or just very kind and generous to God's people to the degree that he built them a synagogue. Okay? Now Jesus started on his way with them, And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, And turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, let me do something very quickly, and I don't want to belabor this point. Um, There there are those that have read these two accounts, Matthew and Luke's, and said, ah, we've got a contradiction. Your Bible's junk. Okay, so maybe you picked up on it. Matthew's account, it, it definitely seems like the Roman centurion comes to him himself. Okay, it says... Roman centurion uh, came to Jesus and asked for this, and basically then a lot of it's the same, okay? Here we have the Jewish elders, Luke says, coming, okay? So there's a lot of possible, I promise, there's a lot of possible explanations of this, and if you're a nerd like me and you like to read that stuff, go look, I promise. There's people that, you know, they're considering the time of day, and maybe the centurion had a horse, and who knows. There's 15 ways to explain this, but I think the simplest one is is the best, and it's this, okay? Um, If... Okay, let's say, let's say you work in an office, okay, and 
uh, you're, you know, okay, so you're a mid-level manager and then, then you got a boss above you. So one day the boss's assistant comes up to you and says, hey, I need you to go tell Johnson, all right? If he's got time to be sending funny memes to everybody all day, we don't really need him here, okay? So you go to take the message to Johnson about the memes, right? Okay, what are you going to say? Are you going to go up and say, well, uh, the boss's assistant told me to tell you that da 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 or are you just going to say, the boss said you better quit with the funny memes all the time or you're going to get fired. Okay, so basically the point is Luke, you know, Luke's audience was to more to Gentiles. Matthew's audience was more to the, the nation of Israel itself. And so th- that would affect some of what they decided to include. Ultimately, there's a legal precedent that would, been, would have been true then and is even true now. That basically, if I'm, if I'm somebody's boss or they're, they're an employed agent of mine or I commissioned them to, to go do something and say that thing was, just for sake of argument, that thing was illegal. Uh, I don't get to then say later if, if, if the whole thing falls apart and they get busted, oh, well, I didn't do it. They did it. I'm responsible. Like, it's my word that sent them to do the thing. Okay, so Matthew very likely just wrote it the way he wrote it because the point he was getting to is the centurion requested for Jesus to come, which is the point. Okay, so the fact that the Jewish elders came and did it. I don't, no, nobody, nobody would have seen that as an issue. The, the message still came from the centurion. The centurion was imploring Jesus to come. The Jewish elders were just errand boys, basically, in this setup. Okay, so again, if you don't like that answer to the contradiction, go find some of the more complex ones and, and have yourself a great day. All right, so, all right. Um, what's, what's really interesting, okay, and, and I kind of keyed it in already, but I want to I show, I can't, I can't wait to show this to you guys. I've never seen this in here before, and it's, it's blowing my mind, okay? So the elders, the Jewish elders that came to Jesus on his behalf, um, they thought he deserved the miracle because he was such a good guy, because of his good works, right? What did they say? Jesus, you should do, you sh- you sh- this guy, you know, his servant is sick, and he's asking for you to come, and you, you should do this because... He's been really good to our people, and because he built us a synagogue, so, you know, he's really generous, he's friendly to us. Um, you know, we don't really know what all the Jewish leaders' motives were here. It may have very well been they just wanted to curry the favor of the centurion so they can get Jesus to come. We don't even know if they were real confident Jesus could do what the centurion thought he could do, but the bottom line is the centurion was kind of in charge of that area. He was, you know, ahead of 100 soldiers. They reported directly to the generals. The generals reported directly to Caesar, so this guy is, this is a power guy, Okay. Um, and they would want to be on his good side. But it's very clear uh, that the elders thought this centur- Jesus should come and heal this centurion's servant because of how good of a guy he was. But the centurion knew it was going to be by grace alone if Jesus did it. How do I know that? Because of this. Well, it's in Matthew. Both, both Matthew and Luke made sure to include it, didn't they? What did he say? Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. I mean, if there was a guy that was going to think he was worthy to get this Jewish miracle worker to come over to his house and heal this servant, it would have been the Roman centurion. If someone was going to be up in their head about their own importance, honestly, I'm surprised the Roman centurion didn't say, go tell that Jewish miracle worker to get over here and heal this guy or I'm going to have his head. 
But something in this guy made him understand, no matter how important he was in the social status or according to Rome or whatever, that he needed to implore Jesus, he needed to ask Jesus, and he needed Jesus' mercy for it to happen because he wasn't even worthy for Jesus to step in the door of his home. He knew that grace and mercy was going to be involved in this thing, and who was who on the totem pole of authority? Friends, do you see it? Do you see the gospel starting to peek through? Do you see what snapped Jesus' neck? Why Jesus said, hold on a second, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. Because everyone in Israel was still all messed up on Mosaic law. They all thought we're going to be clean on, by doing the right things and making sure we wash our hands and eat the right stuff. And that's what Jesus kept saying, man. No, I'm here. I'm the one that's bringing salvation. It's going to be through faith. It's going to be through grace. And we see right here, this, this is what got Jesus' attention. I think the authority thing mattered, but I think this is really what caught Jesus' attention, is that this pagan Roman soldier somehow was understanding the great mystery of the gospel that was yet to even be unfolded, right? <laughs> you don't get to say to Jesus, I've been good to the people, I've built them a synagogue, I'm a pretty good guy, I care about this servant, I deserve you to come heal my servant. It's not how we come to him. He got low. He said, I'm not worthy. I know I'm not. But please still do it anyways. And if you want to know something about how you're supposed to come to the Lord, you can learn it from the centurion servant. The, 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 where, where people err sometimes is they'll see this and they'll think that, oh, well, the centurion thought Jesus could just Wi-Fi the healing, right? So that means his faith was really strong. And that's the whole point of this. It's really about really strong faith. The major point is not how strong or even accurate the centurion's faith is. Think about this. I mean, God, Jesus' great mercy in this. How, the centurion somehow knew that he had a faith for, that the authority Jesus had was going to be able to handle this long distance. But he couldn't have known he's the Messiah. He couldn't have known he's the second member of the Trinity. He couldn't have known he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. There's no way he knew all that. He didn't have all the doctrine in order. But he had faith in Jesus' authority, right? And he knew he was going to need that guy's mercy and grace. Knew he wasn't worthy. It wasn't about the accuracy of the centurion's faith. It wasn't about the strength of his faith. It's far more important than those things is, is who his faith was in. Who his faith was in. And, and what do I mean when I say that? Let, let me give you this example. Okay. Let, let's, say, let's say we get a... There, there, there's a bomb call, okay? And, and, and some, some wacko, you know, the guy from Speed back in the day with Keanu Reeves on the bus, he's back again, okay? Let's say he broke out of jail. So he's put two bombs in a building, okay? So the bomb team has to split up. They're two best bomb techs. One goes to the basement, one goes to the roof. That's where the two bombs are, all right? So they're, they're looking at the bombs. They're going to try to defuse them, all right? So we got a red wire, we got a yellow wire, we got a blue wire, okay? The, the bomb, bombardier likes primary colors, right? So we got three wires. That is the primary colors, right, art people? Blue Red, yellow? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Somebody, man, y'all, woo, all right. The education system, glory to God. Okay, um, so, so we got a red wire, we got, we got a blue wire, we got a yellow wire. Okay, so one guy, okay, the guy on the roof, that, that, guy's, that guy's real confident, okay? So he, he says, I know it's the red wire. I I'm 100% sure it's the red wire. When I clip this red wire, that's going to defuse the bomb, that's the right answer. The guy in the basement is, is less sure. Uh, 
I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the yellow wire, but I don't know. But the timer's about to go out and we're all going to die anyway. So we got to clip one. Guys, my best, best shot we got to the yellow wire, okay? So they clip the wire at the same time. Yellow wire guy, the bomb doesn't go off. Red wire guy blows all to smithereens, okay? But the red wire guy had real strong, confident faith that he knew which one was right. So here's my question. Which one was more important? That the guy had strong faith about the thing he was wrong about or the guy had put the right faith in the right wire? You can, you can be real confident and be wrong. <laughs> you have a lot of faith in the wrong thing, and that's something else. People, people think that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's only ignorant people that, that aren't learned that, that, have, that would have faith in God. Listen to me. You've got to have faith in something to function in this life. You believe in something. You've got faith in something. It's just a question of what. You believe in yourself, or you believe in societal structures, or you believe in, in the advancement of science that eventually we'll make it and we'll solve all the problems. Your faith is in something. I'll never let anybody make me feel dumb for putting my faith in God. You got faith too. Just where are you going to put it? Faith in God is a, is, is a great gift, and it's, it's the only right place to place it. It's, it's, the only, it's, the only, it's the only way we don't end up broken, disappointed, and, and just overcome. Here's, here's, the, here's the reality. Here's what I'm seeing in this. Jesus sees this guy having this, this gospel-esque understanding of how it works when you come to God. And that it's, it's not a works-based righteousness. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not that he's going to come and somehow negotiate because of his bank of good works getting this miracle for his servant. And, and, and this catches Jesus' attention, and, and why is that? And it's because the gospel is so glorious that even its architect marvels when its power is on display. The gospel is so glorious that even its architect marvels when its power is on display. And friends, this should not surprise us because we know that the angels as well are enamored with the glorious beauty of God's plan to redeem his people. We're almost done. Let me just read you this from 1 Peter. If somehow you've checked out on me, come back. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Hallelujah. He continues, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries 
seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, those prophets of old is who he's talking about, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The point is, this glorious gospel, this plan of redemption based upon grace through faith in Christ alone is so precious and so glorious that even the one that dreamt it up before the foundation of the world, even the one who put this whole thing together, when, that began, when the glimpse of that came through and the way that centurion approached him, it caught his attention and caused the master himself to marvel at this faith. This faith based upon, he had to trust in that Jesus was going to do the right thing based on mercy because he knew, didn't he? He said, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to step under my roof, but I'm asking you, take mercy on my servant. This is the only way we come to God. It's the only way. We come humble and we come understanding that it is by his goodness and by his grace alone that we approach him. It is by his goodness and by his grace alone we receive anything from him. We don't ever come bringing a list of all the reasons why he owes us or could at least do us a solid this time. It's never the way. And that faith, friends, that gospel faith caused the master to marvel. And I'm just, I'm just going to drop it on you again. Will you judge yourself? Will you ask yourself, will you begin to pray along the lines of, God, I want to have a faith that would please you, that makes you marvel. I want to have a faith that would catch the attention of the angels, not for my glory, but oh God, because I desire so greatly to please you because I know what I've received in Christ. I know how good you've been to me. I know how perfectly I've been loved by you. And now everything in me wants to please you above all else. And so, yes, we need the Spirit's help to trust and believe in faith in the authority of Christ as it pertains to us and everything around us. But we also need the Holy Spirit's help every day to stay out of the wretched trap of pride that would cause us to think we deserve anything other than the exact opposite of mercy and grace from God. We deserve his judgment and his wrath, but what we've gotten instead is his love and mercy and acceptance and affirmation and a welcome from him. And all of that is only because Christ lived the life we couldn't, died the death we should have, and then rose from the grave. The gospel is astounding. And so, friends, if, if <laughs> Jesus, who... who was the architect of the plan, if it caught his attention and made him marvel, if the angels still long to look into the glorious details of this gospel that's been preached by the power of the Holy Spirit, then, then if you find yourself bored, if you find yourself unstimulated, or you think maybe the gospel somehow has become unremarkable to you, if you do not find yourself overcome with gratitude and passion for this God that would have a plan of redemption this magnificent and beautiful, then I'm asking you to judge yourself and I'm asking you to get on your knees before God and deal with it and plead for his mercy that he would shake you once more, that you, like the angels for all eternity, would stare with absolute wonder and you yourself would marvel that grace is by faith in Christ. So let's pray. Let's judge ourselves. 
Let's be honest. And let's live in light of these things. Hallelujah. May we be a people who are full of faith in the authority of our sovereign king. And may we walk in obedience to that authority, trusting him completely. May we cause God to marvel in amazement and please him as we walk by faith and not by sight. And may all of this be for our good, but most importantly, for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for the truth that John told us that if they tried to write down everything you did and everything you said, all the books in all the world couldn't hold it. But I thank you so much that in your great, infinite, perfect wisdom, you knew that we needed this account of the centurion coming and imploring the master to heal his servant. Thank you. Thank you, God, for all that we can see here. Lord, help us. We confess a lack of faith many times in your authority, in your absolute authority, and all that that means. And oftentimes, God, it's not just a lack of faith in your authority that causes us to have fear and be intimidated in situations, but it also causes a lack of obedience in us. God, it's not just sometimes that we have a lack of faith in your authority over things around us. Sometimes, God, in our foolishness, we, we, we don't have a faith in your authority over us. And so, God, we need all of that. We need all of that to be fixed. We need our eyes fixed. God, we need our hearts fixed. Lord, we often are a rebellious, stiff-necked people. We often are inclined to seek autonomy and self-rule. We oftentimes believe that foolish, ancient lie of the serpent that you're trying to hold some good thing from us. And if we take the reins of our life back and we try to be in charge, that we can do this better. And God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would drive that ignorance so far from us, we couldn't find it. We need your help for that, God. Lord, help us not only to trust in your authority, but to forever be enamored with your gospel. God, help us to forever understand we don't come to you and demand anything. We don't come to you with a list of accomplishments or obedience or good works and think that somehow that means you owe us. God, may we never, ever, not even in our hearts, come at you like that. Lord, help us. Help us to realize that any good thing we've done has been by your grace anyways. Any faith that we have is a gift from you anyways. It is only by your goodness and your sovereign mercy that we stand here, that we inhale and exhale. All good things have come from your hand. And so, God, may we, may we rest in a posture of absolute exaltation and worship, of always pointing to you, of never taking the credit, of always seeing it is by the might of your hand and it's by the grace of your heart that we live. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for being patient with us, God, when we forget these things. We ask you to help us to forget them less often. God, help us as we have faith in your authority. Lord, help us to believe that you have given us as well the authority and the responsibility to do something about what you've done because you've set us free. We have the authority and the responsibility to go out into this world and to be the light you called us to be. God, help us, please. Help us to see that as our greatest achievement. Help us to be that, help passion for that, God, to be stirred in our heart as our greatest desire. Lord, may we not be more thankful for anything than the simple fact that you have saved us and that you have allowed us to be included in your plan of redemption, that you would use us to bring the good news of your gospel to others. 
God, I don't ever, ever, ever want to get to the place where I am not overcome with elation as I think about the beauty of your gospel. Lord, please help us in this. We're constantly tempted to be enamored with other things, but we don't want to. We're asking for your help. Thank you that you promised us you'll give it. We trust you. We love you. Thank you that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.